0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You want to get anywhere in life, own your task, do it. You know, my dad in high school told me something which I couldn't believe at the time, um, but I now see that it's absolutely true. He said, if you sh- if you show up on time and do what you say you're gonna do, you will be ahead of 90% of the people in the world. And I was like, you've gotta be kidding me. There's no way mm-hmm. that's true. And you know, in the workforce and you know, with various people I've seen, it's true. Like literally just owning those two pieces will get you mm-hmm. way ahead.
4: Fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
0: Thank you. I'm loving it. Here, I'm psyched. Let's do it. Yeah, me too. So I got a copy of your book, Not Effing Around, The No Bullshit Guide for Getting Your Creative Dreams Off the Ground. And um, uh, you know, as I was saying to you before we hit record, I think what I, what I loved most about uh, this book and books like this is that they're short and they're punchy, um, yet somehow they managed to pack a lot of meaning and insight into you know very few words, which I think takes a whole different talent than writing things that are long. Um, but before we get into all of that, Um, as you know, from having listened to the show, I want to start with a weird question, which I always do. Uh, Mm -hmm. and although this is not that weird anymore since people have heard it, but what did your parents do for work and how did that influence and shape the choices that you've made with your own life and career?
1: Right. Well, uh, my dad was a lawyer, right? So we grew up in this sort of small, um, city in Pennsylvania, suburbs of the small city. And he was a lawyer. My mom, and this is in the eighties, had her own business selling, uh, what they called, or our business was called creative specialties, which was basically anything that you could put your logo on. Right. So mm-hmm. it might be a, a pen or a Frisbee, like all that kind of stuff. So she had a home-based business when, uh, as I was growing up. So both of those things were really influential, um, in my mm-hmm. upbringing. Yeah. yeah. What did they teach you um, You know
0: about careers? Because one of the things that you say in, in your book is, as a kid, the words of your parents can launch you into the stratosphere, or crash you into a brick wall before a liftoff. Many, many young dreams have been thwarted by well-meaning parents who want their kids to be safe, secure, and get a decent job at some point. Fair enough, but here's the rub. People only know what they know. They assume what's good for them is good for everyone, especially their children. This is simply not always true. So I wonder, what did your parents tell you?
1: <laughs> yes beautiful um well here is a memory that i have which i don't even know if it's actually true but it has certainly affected me right so we don't really know if our memories are actually true and they've proven that you know a lot of times they're not right? yeah. but here's this memory okay i'm about 15 years old And I've been playing guitar, electric guitar, for maybe two years. And I am really getting into it. I'm buying records with every penny I've got. Every day after school, I'm coming up there into the bedroom and just like practicing the riffs, you know, by Ozzy and U2 and Tom Petty and Bowie and all these kinds of, you know, great things that I was into at the time. And, you know, the kind of messages you're getting at that age are you can be, I mean, hopefully you're getting, is you can be anything you want to be in this life, right? Mm -hmm. You can do it, kid, that kind of thing. What are you going to major in in college? You know, this kind of stuff is starting to come up, right? Mm -hmm. So one night I come down from practicing, playing the guitar. I'm like, Mom, Dad, I decided what I want to be when I grow up kind of thing. I want to be a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) And this did not go over very well. In fact, I recall, you know, it was no, you're not going to be a rock star. That is a hobby. That is what you do Mm -hmm. on the side. That is not a real job. Okay. And that just, you know, it was just a kick in the ass. It was just, you know, it just took me down so hard. And it took me a while. It took, I mean, when I say a while, it took me 15 years really to get past this idea that, you know what, these things can be a job, right? They can Uh be a hobby. It's great. That stuff, you know, creativity is great as a hobby too, but it can be a job. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, and it took me years to figure this out, is that although it hurt so much in that moment and took years to kind of work through. It was also quite probably a big part of the fuel that it took me to really kick ass and step forward. So if you've, Um, you know, you may have read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, right? Yeah. And one of the things he says in there is every world-class person, whether it's Michael Jordan, you know, with the basketball or the Beatles or, you know, whatever, all these like really top tier types. Every single one of them has been shot down in their youth by someone they care about. It's, you know, generally the parents or the teacher or somebody who says, there's no way you can do this. You suck. It's not your thing. Whatever. And that is part of the almost like the resistance that says, screw that. I'm doing it. And, you know, as juvenile as it sounds, it's almost like the energy where it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you take, you know, the next two, five, 20, 50 years to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Do you have kids? I do not have kids. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah. I, I was gonna ask, you know, what advice you would give to parents who are listening if you have kids, but even then, what 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 would you suggest? What
1: what would you tell parents <laughs> who are listening to this? <laughs> well, I would tell parents to like really identify, like, first of all, expose their kids to as much stuff as possible, not just the stuff that they already know. Because this is the default. Parents who are into you know let's say they're into sports they expose their kids to all kinds of sports things parents are into nature stuff experience their kids into nature parents are into artsy stuff okay that's all great but really a much better idea is the parents to get out of their own comfort zone to be like what cool different things in the world whether it's creative or not can they turn their kids onto and then watch to see what their kids are really latching onto and then supporting that. And I have to say, you know, my parents did support me in many ways um, with the music as time went on. They got me a guitar, you know, they um, helped with classes, you know, they got me a four track tape recorder one year um, for my birthday or something, which was a huge deal um, for anybody, you know, who's, you know, uh, grew up in the eighties and is a Mm -hmm. musician the four track tape recorder is you know today's version of garage band but it was yeah. really it was a huge deal back there and it really launched my recording career in a huge wow. way most mostly by the practice that it gave yeah. me yeah
0: Well, so this is an interesting moment for me because I, I, my parents talked me out of a a career in music. I got into the USC school of music and I've mentioned this before and and I'm glad they talked me out of it because, you know, tubas are not particularly versatile. Um, (laughs) but for me, this is a question of how do you balance the reality that comes with the struggle of a creative life in which nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible with the optimism to pursue it anyways?
1: that is a really good question and that i think a lot of it comes down to a few factors one of it is one of them is your personal risk tolerance right how much are you willing to risk okay to get that reward right risk reward um, another piece of it is where are you in your life if mm-hmm. you are 19 years old And, you know, going for the big time and whatever that means in your creative life, it's probably a lot different than if you are, you know, 45 and have two kids. Right. It's a very different thing so that so your circumstances in life are going to dictate this. So in general, I would say, you know, the younger you are, you know, the more risk you might be willing to take. Right. Because that's the time to do Mm -hmm. it because life will pile stuff onto you. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think there's any real formula. It's just how much are you willing to risk? Mm -hmm. How big is your ambition? And what are your circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the more interesting things about
0: choosing uh, a career in the arts is that we don't necessarily have a roadmap that says, you know, this is <clears> – <throat> you go here, you go here, you go here, you get this degree, you work this job, and you, you basically make these sort of vertical leaps up to where you want to be. Uh, I think that that's one, one thing that uh, I think i consistently found across every single person I've interviewed that there's one pattern, and it's that none of their paths are linear. And I just, I don't think that you can have an interesting career, uh, by following a straight and narrow path. Mm-hmm. I just don't think those two things can coexist. It's very rare in my mind.
1: And a, a creative life, it just, just by virtue of being creative is not linear because part of what creativity means is exploration and, and, um, you know, curiosity, Right. And these things are not linear. I mean, they can be in a way you can like nerd out on one topic or one technique in your music production or, you know, something like that. And that's cool. But it's sort of like after you master that or after you get to a point where you've kind of had enough, what else is there in the world? It's like Mm -hmm. creativity is really, in my mind, it's not just a... um like a, a practice of creating something, whether it's a book or music or dance or whatever, it's like, it's like a way of being, Mm. how can you be creative in your life? And, you know, sitting in a job, the same job for 40 years is not generally creative. So Mm. that's the way it goes.
0: So, you know, I think that Uh, what's interesting is that we're very much socialized to believe that life is linear. And if you think about it, it makes sense that you would be socialized to do that because you spend probably the first 22 years of your life going, you know, through it in a very linear fashion. You go from grade one to two, you know, two to three, three to four until you get to high school, then you go to college, then you get your first job. And Mm -hmm. so I wonder how do you undo that, uh, deeply embedded social programming of life being linear when you want to go
1: away from, you know, what you've known for so long? Mm -hmm. It's another great question. So I teach songwriting to college students out here in Seattle or near Tacoma. And um, I've got a couple graduates, you know, (laughs) every year it's one-on-one lessons. So I've got a guy right now who's about to graduate. And he is, he's basically asked me that exact same question. He's like, I've been doing what I'm told and been on this path my whole life. And now, you know, in three weeks from now, I'm out in the world. What do I do and how do I go about this? So really, you know, my advice to him and really to anyone is look for where your goals are right? And think about ways to get to them. But it's more like use a compass Mm -hmm. than a map, right? Where you know where you're going, but the direct route there is never going to happen. It's just not as a creative person. So you need to be open to be like, ooh, here's an opportunity. And then the question is, is it aligned with my goal? Do I even want to have the same goal? Because I can tell you for sure, I've changed my main missions in life you know, many times. Uh, and I'm sure I will again. So where is your goal? And, and sort of how do you get there? And what makes sense? And then you just kind of step forward towards it. And, yeah. you know, the, the biggest thing is just... The forward motion it's like literally just doing something, yeah, right if you, yeah, if you're gonna be a writer, just write something, uh-huh, you know, well, it was you know,
0: as we were saying before I hit record, like I had an idea for a new book called Prolific, and I realized like yeah, this is the only thing I know that has been you know what I would call uh you know the magic bullet, uh which is anything but a magic bullet because being prolific takes work uh and yeah, I mean, I think that people aren't patient because of that. I wonder, uh, as a teacher, what have your students taught you about being a better teacher?
1: Uh, well, I mean, the first, the first piece is th- they always teach me something, right? I mean, you've heard that a million times, but it's re- yeah. it really is true. But how to be a better teacher, they all learn in different ways, right? Some of them need the step-by-step, some of them need the big picture, some of them like want to move forward beyond what I'm teaching them without learning the basics, you know, all these kinds of things. So the biggest thing they've taught me over the years is to really tune in to who they are and and sort of how they learn. And then from there, I can adjust my teaching style a little bit to, to, so they get it, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, having heard the podcast, you know that there's no way I'm going to not ask you about your views on education at large, particularly because mm -hmm. you're an educator, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're an educator in the arts, which is, I think very different than a lot of the other educators that I have interviewed. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder, you know, as somebody who's an educator, particularly in the arts, what are your views on the modern education system? In what ways do you think it needs to be changed for the better or to get it to its intended outcomes?
1: Well, uh, there are a lot of problems with the modern education system, I would say. You know, it, it, it is, you know, they just try to crunch you into you know, a system that that does one thing, it doesn't really react um, to the student's needs. And then it largely doesn't even teach you what you need to know, like as a, as, you know, in your field and as a human, right? So I, I do, I have no idea how to fix these problems. That's way beyond what I can deal with. But, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a situation where situation where I've got one-on-one lessons with students. So I can, you know, I teach them what I need to teach them, you know, how to write a song and how to record on a computer is basically the mission. But depending on who these start students are, how much depth they have in their and their willingness to go into what it means to really be a creative and an artist, I can, I can move around and get into all my life coach stuff with these Mm -hmm. guys where, you know, they do not get this kind of really attention and information anywhere else in the, in their entire education. Like I've had students say to me, you know, you're the only one who has ever talked to me on the level of like where I'm at instead of sitting up there spewing information at me and telling me to memorize this stuff. I'm like, Oh my God. So it's such an honor for me as an educator to, you know, kind of do that for them, but it makes my heart just crash and sink that 99% of the students out there, you know, never get any decent counseling or, um, you know, their advisors or whatever. They're all, it's all, It's all part of a system (laughs) and we need systems in the world. That's for sure. But when the systems get too rigid or not open enough, they, they do what they do, which is they just, they crunch you into someone who you are not. And that is not cool. Yeah, yeah, you know it's funny when we
0: talk about counselors, and I, I think about you know counselors at my college at Berkeley, even in my high school, guidance counselors. I'm like, how can we call these people guidance counselors? All they guided me on was how to plan a schedule. Right? <laughs> you know? I'm like right. I could have hired a, a $10 an hour virtual assistant to plan my schedule. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I was always, you know, I find it that odd that you know we would put people in such critical roles, and you know have them be responsible for such huge outcomes, yet they don't actually own, take any real ownership. Um, So the other thing, you know, I I wonder, and this is something I asked somebody before, and it wasn't about education, but it was about large scale change uh, within systems, whether that system be education, whether that system be government. Do you think that large scale change in education is going to come from within the education system? It's even possible from within a system, or does it have to come from the outside?
1: Uh, it's not going to come from the education system unless it is absolutely forced to meaning, you know, the place is crumbling or the, the system is crumbling and they've like, somebody finally wakes up, you know, revolutions of, of really any kind, as far as I know, Start from the bottom. It's the people who are just like screw this. It, you know, if when, if or when students are like, I'm not paying this much money for college, I'm going to spend a quarter of that on online classes and coaches, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and books and videos because all that stuff is accessible now for way cheaper, um, and they can get to the same goal you know, yes, they will lose the socialization of college and things like that for sure. And the support systems and some people will fail for sure doing it that way, but, um, it, it will start to, you know, affect the outcome of these institutions and they will make changes and they are, you know, currently in ways, but is it good enough? Who knows? The bigger the thing is, the harder it is to change it. Yeah. Whatever system it is. What separates
0: your students that go out and succeed with their careers from the ones who
1: don't? Like, what have you noticed as the subtle differences between them? Oh, well, well, whether it's my coaching clients or my students um, at school, the biggest thing is, is really their ownership and their investment in their process. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds so obvious, man, listen to this story. You'll love this one especially as a writer. This was years ago. I have this student come in and, you know, I, I meet with him once a week. This guy comes in and he's like, my homework didn't get done. I'm like, your homework didn't get done. So this is like a cake, right? Where you mix it up and you preheat the oven and you stick it in there. And, you know, 45 minutes later or whatever, The cake just didn't get done. This is your homework. I'm like, dude, you didn't do your homework, right? There's a big difference, you know, in language, as you know, every word counts, right? And in, in the way we think about this. So this guy, like (laughs) he separated himself from his, you know, his job or his mission for that week in such a way that he it didn't even matter to him really. And this kid, by the way, ended up dropping out of college and who knows what happened to him. But, you know, I really tried to stress to him that it's your homework. Do it. You want to get anywhere in life, own your task, do it. You know, my dad in high school told me something, which I couldn't believe at the time. um, But I now see that it's absolutely true. He said, If you, if you show up on time and do what you say you're going to do, you will be ahead of 90% of the people in the world. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way Mm -hmm. that's true. And, you know, in the workforce and, you know, with various people that I've seen, it's true. Like literally just owning those two pieces will get you Mm -hmm. way ahead. Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative is
0: brought to you by Rev.com. So one thing that I find myself doing when I'm writing blog posts is I'm often using quotes from things people have said in the podcast. And in the past, I used to find myself rewinding and trying to type whatever they were saying. And as you might imagine, this was incredibly time-consuming and kind of a pain. But then I discovered Rev, which gives you transcripts and you can gain valuable insights that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise by having interviews, meetings, and speeches recorded and transcribed. And all these transcripts are easily accessible and completely searchable on a single user interface. You also get to save a ton of time because you get an accurate transcript in your inbox in less than 12 hours. And it helps you avoid creative blocks by using a transcript that can be edited to create brand new content, whether that be a blog, a white paper, a book, or et cetera. I've used transcripts to do all sorts of things in my work. Like I said, uh, for writing blog posts, as well as writing sections of my previous books. And since you're an unmistakable creative listener, Rev is offering a free trial to let you try it out. So they're offering a $10 coupon for first-time users. So just go to rev.com slash blog slash creative. Again, for your free trial and a $10 coupon, go to rev.com slash blog slash creative. Well, it's funny because I was having that exact conversation with somebody on my team and, and, you know, we were kind of talking about motivation and and kind of how, um, those little things matter, I, you know. Even if they don't seem like a big deal, the problem is that the little things add up and they create opportunity costs. Like most people don't realize, like oh, if I delay this thing by a day, it's not a big deal. And yeah, it might be a small thing, but then when you add up a hundred of those small things together, you know, something that was delayed by a day gets delayed by a week, which gets delayed by a month, which cost you mm-hmm. potentially thousands of dollars. Like people don't see opportunity cost. I think to the small things. The other thing is that mm-hmm. the very definition of integrity, according to the folks at the Mark Forum, is you do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it, and and the, the funny thing is that I am always amazed by how effective that is when you start with yourself. Like, if your to-do list is too long, put less shit on it. Um, That's right. what happens is that creates momentum. And that always has, has struck me as one of those things that uh, I've realized has been instrumental as well in terms of getting me to where mm-hmm.
1: I'm at. Absolutely. So, My con- – oh, go ahead. No, if whatever, else- go ahead. No. no, yeah. My my uh my strategy on the to do list is, and the to do list is huge, right? Without it, if you, if you don't have a to do list, forget it. There's no way, <laughs> you know, you're really going to get ahead in this world. But, um, you know, for me, I like to put my daily lists, and then a little bit more, right? Like a little bit more than I can possibly actually do. So this keeps me, you know, stretching every day without the overwhelm because if uh-huh. the to-do list is too long you're just going to feel overwhelmed
4: one size
3: fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
1: nice dress uh it's a it's a
0: t-shirt
3: until you tried it on same goes for your health care United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, walk me through how you actually get to this point in your career. I mean, you, you know, teach songwriting, you write songs, you write books. Like, how did this multi-hyphenate career actually come together <laughs> after your parents <laughs> told you not
1: to go be a rock star? <laughs> right. Um, well, as far as the music goes, I just recorded on that four track and played in bands and all that stuff, saved up every freaking penny I could make in high school and and spent it in one week in a recording studio at age maybe like 19 and had my first demo tape. Oh my God, you know, that was a miracle. That was a real investment. It was it was basically all the work I'd done you know, in high school for, for three years spent in a week that turned into six songs. That was, you know, that's stepping into it mm-hmm. anyway. Um, continued with all that stuff, moved to LA, played in bands there, blah, 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 came up to Seattle. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I'm writing screenplays. I'm being a, a music journalist. I wrote for, um, uh, a radio station up here in Seattle called the end K N D D which was the station that broke grunge music to the world. And uh, they hired me in the mid nineties when a little thing called the internet was just starting. So I was the internet. uh, I wrote the website for this big radio station. It was a pretty big deal. Um, What else? I got tons of placements on film and TV with my music, won a big award, best independent electronic artist in the world. Uh, One of my films picked up, uh, got picked up by uh, Gaia.com, which is a, a streaming video service, so that was cool. I've started all these businesses to help, um, you know, independent artists, particularly musicians. In the meantime, I studied and started practicing NLP neuro linguistic repatterning, which is a way to help people tap into their subconscious to kind of uh, untangle their subconscious blocks because I believe that much of what's going on in our lives is based on our subconscious patterning. You know, got into the life coaching, you know, trained in that. And uh, how did I get the job at the school? You know, divine intervention. I don't know. You know, my friend had it and he kind of passed it to me. And that was that. You know, so many of the things, you know, without going into all the stories is, you just step forward, you do stuff, you build your credibility, you build your skills, all this and that kind of thing. And then ding out of nowhere, you know, quote, quote, something really cool comes around and then it steps you up. It steps you forward. It moves you, moves the thing. It, it even tweaks your career path in different ways. I never knew I wanted to be, a you know, teach students songwriting. I didn't even know there was a job Mm -hmm. for something like that, but I'll tell you what, it's just fantastic. I, you know, I do it once a week. I love it. I get to hang out with 20 year olds and, you know, like light them up, you know, not only just teach them verse, chorus, blah, blah, you know, and how to like write a lyric and all that kind of stuff. But like, like what is music? What is art? Like why, why does it matter? Right? Because it does. It's huge and uh it's it's a huge honor to to do that and really to work with everybody that I work with yeah uh, how do you think about success
0: now that you have had a uh, commercial successes as a creative i mean i i always wonder you know what happens to somebody's sort of viewpoint on that uh only because i i think that in my mind you know up until you're commercially successful you realize that um you know, it, it was one of those things where you keep dreaming, 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 and then this thing happens and it doesn't solve all the problems you thought it would. You know, I think that there's this really interesting uh, question that Dak Shepard asks people in on his podcast where he says, you know, you're rich, you're famous, um, you're successful. Has it solved all the problems you thought you would? And I don't think a single person out of the hundreds of people he's interviewed has ever said
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I have really come to understand in the last five years or so Is that creativity? So it's great to have that success and you know, go for it if you're into it, whatever your ambition is, that's fine. But at its best, creativity is a way for us to be seen, expressed, and healed. So what does that mean? To be seen, to be seen out there in the world is, you know, on the internet on the city street on the highway it's really easy to feel anonymous you're one of zillions of people you know the feed on your facebook and whatever just keeps going you kind of get lost in that the second step in is your acquaintances you know people maybe that you work with or you kind of know do they see you and really get you probably not they might know a little bit about you and they you know whatever but they probably don't really care and then even your deep layer, your inner circle, right? Hopefully they understand you, they get you, things like that. But I think, you know, in my experience, they sort of get you, they get you in waves, but they don't see the whole, you know, totality of, of what it, of who you are and what you're trying to be, right? So that's the scene part. The express part in my sort of little definition here is simply moving from the potential to the actual. So think of like a dancer who knows all the moves, who's really got it going on. But in this moment, she's sitting in the corner while the disco ball is flying and the music's thumping in that music. She is not expressed. As soon as she steps on the dance floor, she is then expressed as a dancer. Okay. So you've got the scene and the express what's the healing part. Well, In my experience, and really in every creative that I've ever talked to, when you create with deep authenticity and real truth, whatever you're doing, there is some kind of catharsis. Something lifts, something is freed from your being, right? Whether that is, you know, some traumatic experience or thing like that, that you're writing about or dancing about or making poems or singing songs. Or even something that, you know, seems like it might be really happy, like a love song. What's the release or, you know, letting go in a love song? I would say the healing in that comes from celebrating the end of all the loneliness and despair that perhaps came before that. So when you are seen, expressed, and healed through your creativity, you then give that gift of your creativity to the world, whether that's, you know, some blockbuster or one person, right? When you give your gift of creativity to the world, here's where it gets really cool. You become the gift because you show others that they can be seen, expressed, and healed. And from there, that connects us, right? Art and music and all these kinds of things connect us as humans. And, you know, when you look at what people and humans need, you know, you need your food, your shelter, your clothing, all that kind of stuff. And then you need connection, right? So this puts us as creatives into such a bigger mission. It is not just like, oh, it'll be cool to write a song or to write a poem or do this dance or whatever your thing is. It puts us, in my opinion, in this sort of like army almost or this gang or this crew whose mission it is to be seen, expressed, and healed, give that gift to the world, become that gift, and help the world become more connected. Because that is the biggest underlying challenge, I think, in the entire planet. How can we understand each other and connect and understand that we're we're really we're all on the same team here. Let's just like do this thing. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I think you,
0: you, you brought up in the book, you said you, you will never feel fully prepared to do whatever it is that you want to do. You won't even feel totally capable after you've been doing your thing for year. self doubt is etched into our psyches. It's there to help keep us alive as make us think twice about uh, think twice before taking stupid risks. And I think that, that, that struck me because, um, that's just built into, to who you are. Like I think there's literally no accomplishment that will undo, you know, your sense of self-doubt as an artist or a creator. Like there's always this sense of, okay, this might suck. Uh, I might think it's amazing Mm -hmm. but somebody else might think it sucks. And so I, I wonder how you in your own life have, you know, sort of wrestled with that self-doubt and really overcome it in places and
4: <laughs> also, I, I guess the other thing
0: I, I wonder is when you look at sort of practice and how you get better at something, what does that look like
1: in your own work? Right, Okay, so let me answer that one first. i uh you know I'm a screenwriter, and I was very fortunate enough to be mentored by a guy called Richard Walter, who was the top who was for like thirty some years the top screenwriting professor at UCLA. So basically one of the top uh, you know, screenwriting teachers in the world. So my deal with him was I would write my screenplay. I would send it to him. You know, He's down in LA. I'm up here in Seattle. And he would give me notes and then I would revise it and we kind of keep going. So I do my first draft of my screenplay and I send it to him. And this guy sends me literally 14 pages of typed notes. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of notes. And like, I'm grumbling about it. And, you know, I'm having all this resistance. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about when obviously he does. Um, So I let that settle for a while. And then I take, you know, months to rewrite this thing. I'm like, wow, this is a lot better. Amazing. Right. I send it to him again. Couple of weeks later, it comes back with another ten pages of notes. I'm like, "What? You got to be kidding me!" Yeah, right. And this this iterative process goes on literally for three years. At the end of this three years, you know, he says to me, Jeff, this screenplay is a million dollar screenplay. Warner Brothers, somebody. You know, is absolute. It's absolutely at that tier of, uh, you know, skill level. Whatever doesn't mean they're gonna buy it. Whatever, but it's that good. So, here's what I got out of that. That was a space. It was an educational space, right? Where I could develop myself as, you know, in a safe place, essentially. That's not how it goes in the world, right? When you put mm-hmm. your book out at, you know, on Amazon or something, anybody can comment on that thing. Anybody can review that thing. And believe me, as you know, uh, people are not always that uh, <laughs> you know constructive or kind out there in the world. So one of the big things that I realized many years ago as a creative type in, in all different ways is that we are not our creations. We need to put ourselves with with depth, vulnerability, and courage into our creations, but that does not mean we are the book, we are the album, right? And this is where creatives get very confused because somebody says, you know, hey man, your song sucks, (laughs) right, right? They immediately think, I suck. Right. Uh And it's like, no, your song sucks. You are not your song. And if you can't separate between these two pieces, you will you will be crushed almost immediately in almost any situation. Even, you know, the superstars of any creative world, they put their thing out. There's always haters. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I
0: had, an, I had an episode recently where somebody wrote in and uh, it was because of, of something the guy shared about his infidelity. She literally just wrote me this lengthy email about how I was disrespectful to women and how I devalued women. And I thought to myself, okay, we've had a huge amount of female guests, probably more than most podcasts. And the weird thing is, somebody else who was also a woman heard that podcast and she hired that guy to be her coach. You know? <laughs> and that really struck me as one of those moments of, okay, you know what? You know, who, what, there, there are battles that are not worth fighting. Uh, most, most, mm-hmm. op, more often than not, the battles of people who, you know, rip you to shreds are not worth
1: fighting at all. Mm-hmm. So, what, what's fascinating about that story, and I, I love psychology and like how people work and perceive the world. One of the, one of the huge takeaways I got from, from training in NLP, uh, neuro linguistic repatterning, is that everyone, perceives the world differently. They really do in various ways. And here's the beauty of it. Everyone believes that their perception is the right, deep, absolute truth. (laughs) Right? So you can put the same stimuli in this case, you know, that your podcast and the one woman completely freaks out right? She's, she's like, you're terrible. You all, you know, all the stuff you just said. And then the next woman is like, wow, fantastic. Love it. Both of these women believe their perspective is right. And it is for them, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's yeah. the truth, you know, the absolute truth. It's, it's never that. So the whole world runs around on these assumptions and it, uh, it creates an interesting tapestry. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: there's one other thing that you said in the book that really um, struck me. I remember, you know, I always tend to underline the things that really kind of speak to me or or I feel like are, are relevant to my own life. So you said that if fear drives your choices, fear will overtly or subconsciously rule your life. And that sucks. Decisions based on love are very different. These choices may feel uncertain. They may appear foolish to yourself and others. They may put your money, your time, and your heart at risk you got to be willing to face some risk if you want a shot at a real reward. And yet, I think so many people in their lives make decisions out of fear. Uh, why mm-hmm. is that and how do they change it?
1: Why is that and how do they change it? Well, you know, like it says, there, there's two driving forces and it's fear and love. And, you know, the subconscious piece is what do you get when you're a child? If you are constantly in a parental situation or a um you know in school or with peers or whatever where it's like, no, you're gonna get hurt, stop, da-da-da-da, right? And there's too much of that, and it really gets in there as you expand, as you you know, move forward in your life, that's always gonna be part of who you are. It's always this sort of fear-based mentality is gonna be sort of on the, on the slow burn undercooker of your consciousness. Whereas if it's the other way, you know, if it's, Hey, you can do this, step out, explore that, you know, blah, blah, blah. That is going to be, you know, sort of aligns more with the love aspect of the whole thing. So you're going to be more fearless. Do you need fear? Absolutely. Right. (laughs) You know, you hear stories of, you know, independent filmmakers. I put, you know, a half a million dollars on credit cards to make my first movie. Uh, you know, that's fearless, but it's also pretty stupid. You know, there are different ways to do things. So we get what we get. And I I do also believe that we we are built with different levels of risk tolerance, as well as, you know, how much fear we have and how much love we have. But a, a huge part of it is, um, you know, w- what we're sort of programmed with. So yeah. how do you move forward with that as an adult who is, you know, who's conscious? Well, I, I say, you, the first piece is what is your comfort zone, right? What feels comfortable to you? Cause we all have that. And the comfort zone is the safe place. I won't say it's exactly the fear based place, but it's the safe place. Okay. So from there, the, Moving towards the love and out of the fear is stepping out of that comfort zone. So instead of stepping a mile out of the comfort zone, which is almost you know, guaranteed to backfire and you're going to go running even closer to the center of your comfort zone, you step out a step or two and you stand there and you deal with the discomfort. And as you're moving towards your love, you're moving towards your, your, your joy, your, the stuff that you want in life. Here's what's gonna happen. The comfort zone actually expands to meet you. And then you're in your comfort zone again, right? And then, as soon as that happens, guess what? Take another step towards what you love, towards your dream, towards your thing, towards your business, towards whatever you're into. And again, it's gonna be more discomfort, it's gonna be more fear. That's okay. Stand there, breathe, deal with it, learn, do whatever you gotta do. And guess what? It's going to come up and match you again. It's just the way it mm-hmm. works. Keep doing that every day of your life and you will find your dream. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really nice place to finish our conversation. I have two final questions and this is one I am going to steal from having uh, seen something that Ryan Holly about the question that would change your reading life. Other than your own, what's one book that changed your life?
1: Uh, one book that changed my life is catcher in the rye. Hmm. I read catcher in the rye starting at about maybe, maybe 13 or 14 years old and read this book literally every year until I was maybe 25. And then I stopped and I put it down and maybe in my thirties, I picked it up again and read it again. You know for the first time in 10 or 15 years or whatever it was and it shocked me so much because what i was getting which i didn't know when i was younger was that holden caulfield the character was both so ecstatic with the world and so moody and depressed by the world right so this arc was so big within myself that I didn't even realize that this was happening with the, with his character. When I came back at 35 or whatever and read this thing again, and I was sort of more stabilized, I guess you would say, um, you know, I could see like, wow, this character is, you know, such highs and such lows. How did this affect me? It reminded me That to live a big life, you have to be willing to feel deeply, right? Not numb it out, not avoid it, not whatever. When there is joy and happiness in your life, just like sing and dance in the rain, you know, like whatever, that kind of stuff. And when you're feeling the heartbreak and the pain and the crush and the failure, well, you know what? Sit there in the corner and cry your freaking face off. And, you know, and then let it go. So yeah. that is what, uh, catcher in the rye kind of taught me. Hmm. Amazing.
0: Well, uh, I have one final question for you, which is, uh, I know you've heard me ask before,
1: what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Right. So with this question, I want to step it back a little bit and like, what, what does unmistakable mean? Well, a mistake is a step we take towards something that is not aligned with our goal, our mission, our truth. Right? So unmistakable is the opposite of that. It is something that moves us towards our truth, towards our goal, towards what's really real for us. So when we do that with our creativity, that is powerful that becomes the unmistakable creative right i love it that's my definition or my answer to that question amazing um well i can't thank you enough for taking the time
0: to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners this has been really really insightful and thought-provoking and uh practical which is a rare combo of things Uh, so where can people find out more about you your work your books and everything else that you're up to
1: Right, uh, best bet is my website, Uh You can click you know, through to the book from there. You get free chapters actually. Um, I go into the book. Um, you know I've got the coaching going on, the one-on-one coaching, online classes, you know, that whole thing. So I would love to connect with any of you guys out there and uh, help you out in any way I can. Mm, amazing.
0: And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that.